Andres Sideropoli is from Greece. She is the author of two monographs, Directions for Directing, Theater and Method, published by Routledge, and Author in Performance, The Director and Contemporary Theater. She is Assistant Professor at the MA Program in Theater Studies at the Open University of Cyprus. She holds a PhD in Directing Theory, an MFA in Directing, an MPhil in American Literature, and an MA in Text and Performance. She is the Artistic Director of Athens-based Persona Theater Company with which she has directed works from the classical and contemporary repertory, and has lectured and conducted directing workshops in Greece, Cyprus, Turkey, the United States, the UK, Japan, Israel, Bulgaria, Estonia, and Iran. Ava Sidiropoulou, welcome to The Creative Process. Hi, thanks for having me. Congratulations, you've just published a book on directing, and you've also just produced, I believe it's in February, a Phaedra One. And I was wondering if you just tell us about this isn't the first book that you've written about directing and the acting process. Um, yeah, uh, actually, this is my second monograph, Directions for Directing, and it was published by Routledge, came out in this past September, and before that, a few years ago, I had written Authoring Performance, the Director in Contemporary Theatre. So both books are actually approaching directing, but from a different perspective. Authoring performance is more about the theoretical and historical context that enabled the rise of the director from the late 19th century up until today. And so it's kind of uh, walking you through the different stages in Western theater in general that brought about the director as the new artist that kind of synthesized all different art forms into one. Now, Directions for Directing is more about the methodology of directing. It's inspired by my own process as an artist and brings the different aspects that a director handles from the moment the first kind of idea about a play strikes up until opening night. So it is about the process of directing and working with the different collaborators, such as the actor and the various sets of designers, costume designer, uh, scenographer, composer, etc., etc. And what I like about the approach, as you say, is the contrast between your previous work, which was more academic, and it's very interesting for putting acting and directing into context. But what Directions for Directing seems like it's something that could be read by even those who are, don't have a background in theatre, full of lots of practical advice, and even... I mean, I can imagine even a kind of CEO getting something out of this. Oh, that's, that's an interesting thought. Yes, there is a chapter on directing and leadership, actually, yes. which is about your role as a director within the group and how to hold the group together without necessarily being this person that everybody has to obey, but somebody who inspires, rather, to get everybody working towards the same vision. But yes, I must say, I really enjoyed writing this. It felt like being in rehearsal. And as I was writing every chapter, I mean, there's a chapter on directing and inspiration, directing and interpretation, and then working with the text, working with design, working with actors and acting. Uh, so as I was writing each section of the book, I felt like I was in the room with the team, trying out all those different ideas and then putting them onto paper. And also the book features an extensive workbook section that follows every chapter. So there are a lot of 
directing exercises, and I think a lot of them are very fun, not just for directors and directing students, but also for playwrights, designers. They, they try to incorporate as much of the work that we do in the theater mm. as possible, and not just kind of exclusive steps that a director takes when staging a play. And I also imagine, in terms of its wider appeal for writers as well, I, and I mean prose writers, I mean, you have to be reminded of our intentions. And sometimes you read prose and you feel like, oh, this is, this is indulging something, but it's not getting to the essence or the drama. Mm. And mm-hmm. so I, I found it was full of lots of really useful advice for people in different disciplines. And I don't have the experience of directing theater. But I direct different people. <laughs> Sometimes it's so mm-hmm. nice to be, I imagine, as you're writing, you think, oh, that I could have done, you know, if you go back to other perform- other um, plays that you directed, maybe this is how I should have approached it. Or Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. You realize. Because the, the moment you start putting down your thoughts on paper, they have to become, or they do become more specific, no matter what. So the moment you formulate something down on paper, then you start to realize what it is about. And sometimes just a fleeting thought that you had in rehearsal, um, when you actually theorize about it and you turn it into an exercise and into um, another strategy of the art, then it becomes clearer to you as well. So yes, I think now having written this, I mean, it goes the other way around. Having written the book, I can go to rehearsal feeling more confident in some sense that there is a system, yeah. there is method in madness. So in, in some sense, this is useful because oftentimes I feel very schizophrenic being both an academic and an artist. And Maybe that's what keeps you sane. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> in some sense, yes. Yes, you're right. But there are moments, especially when I'm tackling two big projects at the same time, one being an academic thing like a book or an article and the other one being a production that I have to direct, that you need to speak a different language and kind of think differently when you immerse into either one project. So when you are dealing with that simultaneously, then it, it can become a problem. So it's... <laughs> both ventures, writing, academic writing, and um, directing, they really take up all of your soul. But that's how it should be, I mm. feel. I, I mean, I'm, I, unless I'm deep in that, and then I, I won't feel inspired, and no one else then will feel inspired by the work. Yes, well, I really think it's, it's wonderful that you combine both, and I've certainly found that the arts not just the dramatic arts, but across different disciplines are excellent teaching tools. So no doubt it makes you uh, a stronger teacher as you can illustrate stories in in dynamic ways, which is a problem sometimes in academia. There's so much jargon that no one, that some people just can't understand. Oh my God, yes. Oh my God. You need a a translator, a signer. (laughs) This is what was being said. It can become extremely esoteric and yeah, you feel that instead of including the audience, Everybody feels excluded, I, I feel, oftentimes. And I find myself sometimes struggling with those issues when I write. Yeah. But the other thing is I'm also a playwright, so yeah. that's yet another layer of mm-hmm. complication in, in this fraught, because that oftentimes I, I find myself trying to get away from the structured writing that the academia requires and kind of uh, 
allowing myself to kind of get lost in the emotions that I'm trying to project and still keep the structure, a different kind of structure that drama requires and more like dialogue-oriented and sort of moving somewhere. So it's a new, it's a different aspect, it's a different kind of writing, and I have to uh, switch off the academic role to become the writer that I want to be or to allow myself to try and become a playwright. So let's discuss Phaedra. How did you approach that, you know, to mm. invent it? And I know it's a multimedia exploration. It's a totally new play. It's a completely modern play. It is inspired loosely by the myth of Euripides. And this is a myth that has been taken up several times by Racine, before him Seneca, and then Sarah Kane recently. So it's like, it's a, it's a very popular story. I think... I, I was really trying to give voice to um, a character that, who is really uh, kind of disliked, and for good, for good reason in, in some sense. The, the story is about uh, Phaedra falling in love with her stepson, Hippolytus, and kind of confessing her love to him, being rejected, and dealing with that, th- those emotions of, of rejection and loss. But I took that... Um, story and kind of put it in the general framework of a contemporary, not necessarily just loss of faith in things, but hunger for something else, the appetite for a life that can only go on forever and ever and ever. So wanting the next thing, being insatiable, and not just in love, but uh, feeling that the world is not enough for you and feeling suffocated by the borders of your own identity. Uh, as a woman, as a queen, because she is a royal, as as a 21st century person. So it's not just a woman's play. It is about the hunger for life that we all experience and what happens to us when um, we cannot find that freedom that we need and what are the extremes to which we go to, to achieve that freedom. And so in the sense I, I borrowed or I stole the, the figure, the character of Phaedra from ancient Greek tragedy because there's something about those characters in Greek drama that allow themselves to go to extremes mm-hmm. and they're so huge that we can't really fathom them as contemporary audiences. So I, I wanted to bring that, how shall I say it, that dimension and that stature to our world today and give it a more contemporary edge and a more contemporary context, setting, and language. So when you get to read it, you'll see it it kind of combines heightened poetry with very 21st century language. You spoke about, I mean, we all, we all know there's an, not an element of biography, but we have to draw, we have to inspire ourselves to write stories, to act stories, to direct stories. And so when you spoke of this insatiableness or this desire to escape the limits of our persona, our, pers- our, our personal limits, what were you thinking of beyond the, the text that you knew that you were familiar with? Were you, what were you drawing on? Uh, well... It is a personal thing, obviously. I mean, unless it starts from within you, then you're not going, again, you're not going to have the same amount of investment in in writing that. So there are moments when I feel 
I'm suffocating within the limits of those different roles that I have to play, and mm-hmm. sometimes I feel like I'm failing them all. Mm-hmm. And I'm always um, on the lookout for the next thing to quench the desire to create, mm-hmm. which is very strong. And sometimes when I don't feel I, I-, I can access it, it really hurts. So the parallel path that I can see to, to Fedor's desire for life for me would be the desire to, to, to explore new forms mm. in my art as a director and a writer and to be able to meet different people who are sharing a similar desire and a, a similar thirst to create and to learn. So because I think that collaboration is the only way that can help you break out of yourself. You need another person or another initiative and impulse coming from other artists sometimes to make you bolder and freer in your explorations. Do you know what I, I mean? Yeah, Does that make I any would, sense? No, of course it makes sense. I, you know, I, I, I collaborate so I really understand it. I mean, you know, some, some, kind of, some artists are, you know, don't want anyone else. Hope. But I, I like to collaborate because, as you say, you're always learning from another perspective. And the idea that you had in your mind as it's put on the ground, you see, oh, well, this is, this, you have to adapt to something else. So I'd like to go back to some of those staging collaboration decisions, but also just if you could just introduce us to the Persona Theatre Company. All right, yeah. So Persona Theatre Company is a company that's based in Athens. It started operating, let's say, in 2004. And we've been very interested and have tried to keep up with international collaborations. This is, I think, what makes Persona special at the time when we worked in... Oh, yeah, so just going into that, so you conduct research into European stage representations of 21st century crises, and I think that's so Mm -hmm. interesting how theater can help make those situations real, yes. Yes, so the, yeah, yeah. This, is, this is what I'm working on academically speaking or as a researcher at the moment. And this is why I'm going to Berlin actually because well, Germany is at the forefront of theater's responses to crisis and of finding ways to incorporate afflicted communities into the art of the theater and theater making. So this is what I'm investigating. But yes, crisis is a very big theme. In, in my academic work, but also and in Greek in theater generally. <laughs> yes, yes and in Greek theater. <laughs> and in Greek life too, yes. I think. I mean, we, we are surrounded by it in, in every sense of the, of the word, both ancient crises and what's happening now with the uh, Greek financial crisis, which is going on and on and on for like nine, 10 years now yeah. already. So. Yeah, so then we, we performed also at La Mama oh, in New York mm-hmm. and in 2007, which mm-hmm. was a really wonderful experience. And then the, the most recent international collaboration was w- with the actual staging was in London at Tristan Bates mm-hmm. with um, Phaedra I, which we're hoping can travel to different parts of Europe and other places too. I'm wondering, with all of uh, your travel, because you also, uh, apart from performing or having your plays performed, you've also taught workshops, and 
you've you've engaged with the educational and um, artistic communities, and I'm wondering, when you see your plays performed in these different regions, how does the play change? The audiences are very different, mm -hmm. and there's always a sense of how do I make this play speak to this audience? Let's say in Iran, I mean, we had to make major changes in the staging because of the censorship committee. Yeah. That's a, a very kind of specific instance of uh, different culture, the, the other culture I imposing its own rules. But aside from that, it's, it's very interesting to see how the play talks to a different audience. For example, with, with Phaedra Eye, it was the world premiere was in London. And I thought it's interesting. We should start from London because we incorporated very multimedia perspective, but it was in, very innovative in many ways. And certainly it was not something that I had been myself really involved in. So it was the first time I was really exploring how um, video projections became part of, of the, the body of Phaedra and she interacted with different digital selves um, and characters um, on stage that were actually um, well, part of her costume and her world, her set. 3D so mapping, thought, yeah. Yeah, yeah we, we, did, we, we used mapping. So I thought, well, let's start from England because our London has a kind of sophisticated audience that may be able to see beyond the, the myth and kind of appreciate the form. And, and I was interested to see that the store itself was fascinating to the audiences. I mean, they, they came out of the theater talking about the, the text. And I was, this is not something that I expected. I would expect that more uh, from a Greek audience because we're all familiar with the story from school. We're taught those plays and we're kind of text driven. But I was very happy to see that the play being based on, on a Greek tragedy was actually so interesting to the audience. And then I'm always interested to see how different audiences respond when they watch something and how they show appreciation or non-appreciation, actually. So how quiet they are. Uh, American audiences are very loud, for example. They are always laughing. And if they don't laugh, you feel, oh, there's something wrong with my play. <laughs> or with a production, mm -hmm. uh, or that's my experience anyway. But for example, audiences... Would they laugh at Phaedra Eye? Because as you, it seems, or is it, there's a, there's a comic element to it? Yes, yes. I think so. And yes. we, we really wanted people to laugh. Yes. But I'm sure that were this happening in New York, people would pick up on the humor. And, but in long, people came up to me and said, oh, that was so funny, but we're not, we didn't know if we're supposed to laugh or not because this is ultimately based on a tragedy and things like that. So it's, it's all those cultural assumptions that audiences bring with them. And what did you uh, find audiences in, in Japan? I know you were a Japan Foundation fellow, and uh, their relation to theater is so different as well. Very, I think mostly quiet. I didn't take one of my projects there. I mean, we're hoping to take Phaedra Ai to, to Tokyo. But watching Japanese theater, I felt that people could fall asleep. I mean, especially in the productions of no theater, they would fall asleep, which to me was so interesting. And then they would wake up like 15 minutes 
later because I was always watching mm -hmm. and feel and look extremely engaged in what was going on. So <laughs> there is a different rhythm yeah. in many of the, the especially the traditional Japanese theater that so we're it's not it's so ritualized. Yes, extremely ritualized and very mesmerizing. You might be, you might, you know, it's interesting, but you might be, you might feel insulted, like with something more contemporary. Uh, but I can see how, actually, I, this is an aside, but actually one of my favorite things to do, say if I'm watching a film, is mm -hmm. I fall, fall asleep, or like at home, I mean. I fall okay. asleep, and I start to dream. And sometimes my dream interacts with what I'm hearing, yeah? And so, mm. so it actually okay. becomes better. <laughs> because I think that was so fascinating. But, and then I, and I see that maybe I will rewatch and I'll rewind this. Oh, it, it didn't happen that way. So maybe their imagination uh -huh. is engaging with it, you know? I, th I think there is a very, very good point in, in what you're saying. Mm. Lately, I've been thinking and engaging in this routine which mm -hmm. is which has worked mm -hmm. when i'm very tired or when i want to think something through and i have this idea that's half-baked underdeveloped i i go to bed i just mm -hmm. uh, lie down mm -hmm. and close my eyes and it's like getting rid of all the inessentials and just let the dreams come to you let different thoughts come to you, uh, th that moment between falling asleep and still being awake and thinking about this particular thought. So when I have a project and I'm stuck in rehearsal and I don't know how to uh, deal with a special scene, then often I just lie down and, and let myself kind of keep that at the background mm -hmm. and then different insights come to me. So maybe that's very similar to what you're saying. But it's really, like, yeah, yeah I interacting with the kind of different consciousness. Mm. And so it's interesting. I don't know what level of improvisation is involved in your productions. I mean, once you have a script and you're collaborating with people and they're bringing in their ideas, is it the script very closely followed? Are you listening to ideas from actors? I mean, uh, textually as well as mm, physically. You mean in rehearsal or once rehearsal? we are performing? I don't know. I mean, just how, what role does improvisation play in your creative process? Well, I'm very open to hearing people's mm -hmm. uh, ideas and responses. So mm -hmm. improvisation, I'm all for that in rehearsal. Yeah. With some actors, it's harder to do because they're not impro uh, inclined and yeah. they are very resentful or resisting that. Mm -hmm. But I think there's all these amazing things that can be gained through improvisation, especially with a difficult text and especially with a poetic text. You yeah. absolutely have to make it your own to bring it to yourself. So th the only way you can really do that is by improvising. So I believe a lot in that. Now, once we have more or less decided on, well, I can call them like just the motivations or the actions, but what's going on, what the situation is for each character and each performer, then we... So there are two other questions I'd like to ask, uh, or well, more than that, but just two. I'd like to, what we know, who, which collaborators have you really learned a lot from or just were just a joy to work with? Or what, maybe there, there, there was a creative tension, but it, it, you really loved it. 
And I also wanted, not to forget, to talk about the long shadow of uh, Greek theater. I mean, as you, as you live surrounded by it every day, because I only know these texts through, at, at a distance. As you say, you know it. You know it not just in school, but you know it in your blood. So uh, anyway, I just want to talk about those two mm-hmm. things. Um, collaborators. Uh, I've worked with so many really inspiring people. And I must say, like, I started directing with a play that was inspired by a Greek tragedy. It was called Sexodus. Yes. And <laughs> yeah, about yeah. that. Back in 1999 or 98, mm-hmm. I, I'm not, I think 98 it was, mm-hmm. in New York. Mm-hmm. And there I worked with uh, Kate Muth, who mm-hmm. is an amazing performer and one of the most generous, instinctual actors that I've ever met. Mm-hmm. So she was the person who uh, taught me what acting can be and what actors can do because she was totally open to everything but also extremely well-trained. And that is a combination that is a gift to any director. Of course, there were moments when, um, in the process of staging that, which was a really low-budget thing, but it was so powerful. There was a moment um, at the beginning of the play where Medea, who was you know, one of the characters in the play, is on stage looking out to the audience for about four minutes. And she's just looking at them and seeking answers. And Kate made that work so beautifully, and it was so meaningful. So there is, and, and Elena Pellone, who is the actor who I worked with on Fade Eye, again. Play, no, I'm talking about Fade Eye. Oh, she yes, was my Fade right now. Yes. And she is also an extremely powerful mm-hmm. and very strong actor that can transform from one thing to the next in within seconds. She had to play this character who is becoming all the other characters. And she speaks for Theseus, she speaks as a chorus, she becomes Hippolytus, she is in dialogue as Phaedra with Hippolytus and Theseus within seconds, and she could do that. So actors are, I have really great respect for actors. And then of course there is tension, but in my experience, I sometimes feel if you trust the actor, the actor in the end will show you the way. Mm-hmm. Because both with Kate News and with Elena Pallone, I felt if they had a, a question or if they were kind of nervous about something, I soon realized that it's for good reason. They probably know what they're talking about because the actor knows more about, it feels to me, knows the text in a different way, in understands text better than directors can understand text. So if you trust the actor, then you only have good things to learn. And I know sometimes we don't, and we are very afraid, and we want to hold on to concepts and our vision as directors. But then sometimes that becomes a prison, that becomes stale. Yeah. Um, well, if the actor can't believe in their own role or it's dead right. on their ear, then you know you just have mannequins going around. But this is what Kate told me about her collaboration on uh, working on Sexodus with you. Uh, beautiful Ava and I, Ava and I worked together in New York City at Columbia University. Then we produced a two-woman play called Sexodus where Medea and Electra meet in a desert junkyard while serving their banishment. It was fascinating and was a launching point for me to feel freedom with how I told stories 
and what stories I told kind of inspired me to take the old school rules and break them in half and toss them over my shoulder. So she credits you. As, well, you're very kind. You, you credit her with teaching me. Um, you that, um, oh, that's she, so nice of you. It was, for me, a very feminizing and freeing release into a new theater scape. Can I have that coat? <laughs> yes, I'll <laughs> 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 send it to you. Yeah, so because yes. I, I know Kate and and I know uh, Josh Gladstone, of course, and all those uh, people from yes. the field hall. Um, oh. So maybe uh, Phaedra, I could go there. So yeah. I think Kate would be a beautiful Phaedra. I mean, I do have several parts for Kate, and we've been talking about collaborating soon. Mm. It's just a matter of logistics. How do I get over to New York and how do we how can we find the money yeah. to to produce something but it's in our minds. I think both Kate and I oh, really want to work together again and now that uh, a long time has passed with mature artists, I hope. And yeah. It's so nice when you can meet together people who you knew from the beginning of your career and collaborate again and, and that's so actually you brought up money, and it's something in Europe we don't talk about it a lot, but that is another part of it, the, the fundraising for projects and also making other people believe in your vision. I, mean, I don't know if you like to talk about that, but it's a, it's a real part of the, the business side. Yeah, because in persona, alas, I'm not just acting as the director or the artistic director, but I'm also the managing producer, mm-hmm. which means I'm the one responsible to raise money. Mm-hmm. and. Money is very, very tight in Greece, which is where our funding used to come from, uh, mostly because the state subsidies have become very, very minimal, and the private foundations that used to give money have been somehow using the crisis, the economic crisis, as an excuse to give less or nothing. We were very fortunate to be funded by the J.F. Kostopoulos Foundation for the production of Phaedra, and they funded us in the past, and they're really supporting Greek theater that travels um, abroad. But it is a struggle. It's still a struggle to make theater with very little. I think it's possible, but there comes a point where you need the money to be able to experiment more. I'm not talking about making bigger spectacles, but um, if you work with technology, for example, you absolutely need excellent equipment, and the demand's a lot more costly than doing theater with no technology. So there is a limit to what you can um, experiment with because you simply don't have the money. And often it feels very sad to see how much money goes to commercial theater and to big musicals and to you know, all these things that... Or other or uh, film or television. Well. Or film or television. But that's but that you you kind of accept it because it's a different medium. But yeah. in the theater, it breaks my heart to see that the really good imaginative plays that I often go out to see are done in the fringes and of the city and very small spaces and with very, very little. And just thinking about what these artists would be able to produce with more money, that is what makes it a little heartbreaking. Um, yeah. But we have to keep And it's not about money, but it's, you know, of course one needs to live, and, you know, I, I most artists yeah. that I know would, they practice their art, they all, always go through a period where they're doing their art for nothing, really. 
And yeah, but it's just nice to be able to give people sustenance for what's really good, important work. And I wonder, I, I don't know the whole theater scene in Greece and, and it's in other parts of the world too. There are diminishing audiences, or you say the big spectacle that people pay the very expensive, mm -hmm. buy very expensive tickets, but the, I, I don't know how it is. Has there been a generational change that people are being seduced by other mediums, or what do you find? Well, what I really love about Greece is that it's always been, since time immemorial, it's always been a, a, a theater-loving country. So theater is thriving. And ever since the crisis struck, which was in 2009, the ticket prices have gone down. They were never expensive. The ticket, theater tickets were never expensive to begin with. But since the crisis, there have been a lot of different discounts and concessions for people like unemployed people, students, people over 65, people who, who can go to the theater paying as little as five euros. So that's amazing. Because of that, but not just because of that, a lot of people still go to the theater. And a recent survey proved that there were about 1,500 theater productions a year in Athens, and just Athens. Oh, so that's amazing. a lot. And, uh, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a four million, four and a half million uh, people city. So it's, it's, it is a theater capital, mm -hmm. which is interesting because that's where theater started mm -hmm. in any case. So it's, it's continuing the tradition. How were um, you introduced? I mean, what was, do you have artists in your family? What's your background in terms of? We don't have any artists in, in the family. My parents loved the arts and loved the theater, so they, they took me to the theater from a very early age. But when I was growing up, I wanted to become a costume designer. Mm. And then I did a lot of, I like to act a lot, and especially comedic parts. But I also loved reading, so literature was my big, big love. So I, I decided to start with an academic degree in English literature, and that's where I discovered more about the literature of theater, drama. And that took me to different places, and I had various <laughs> uh, academic degrees. Um, but my real investment in directing started in New York when I decided all of a sudden that I wanted to become, I was at Cambridge in England at the moment um, pursuing a PhD and then I decided that um, I really wanted to to be a director. It, it just came to me that like that, I, um, I thought this was the best way to combine all the different artistic sensibilities that I was enjoying. And then I got into the MFA program at Columbia University directing uh, program, and that's where I think all my aesthetic pursuits were met, and that's what I call my, my, my real training and formative years as a director. So that's how it started. Um, so I think, I, mean, I don't mean to be a technical, but it is something that I, I do ask people, because in this digital age and we are using technology for, you're using it in, in, in beautiful, positive ways, but it's also affecting, and I know that you, you, theater is thriving in Greece, but in other countries, people don't experience theater. And mm -hmm. even and you must see it, even though there's a large theater-going audience there, how technology is affecting the way we're communicating with ourselves, with our imaginations, mm -hmm. and 
What do you think about that? We cannot live without it. It does have an effect on our perceptual abilities and how we experience and enjoy the theater. So we don't have the patience. I mean, a lot of audience members sometimes feel that we don't have the patience to sit through the Japanese no drama, Mm -hmm. for example, because we are used to such a frenetic rhythm as kind of produced through technology. And we kind of dissociate ourselves from a different appreciation of things. So yes, it does have an effect. And also we are very visually oriented through technology because it's all about the onslaught of images. And then we tend to, in the theater, not listen a lot and craving images. So if the images are not that spectacular or if it's not just about spectacular images, um, then um, as audiences we feel that we're missing something often. Oh, that's so strange, and I think that's a generational thing. I do love, I mean, you have beautiful images in Phaedra. I, and then, as I'm told about other works that I haven't yet been able to experience, and then I can see also, just point, cutting in how your love for costume design definitely <laughs> is coming out. Um, yes, it's an extension of yourself, a costume. It's not just a costume, it's your world. Um, but where was I going with this question? I can't even remember. Sorry, um, I cut you off. No, no, it's like I'm... No, you were I, talking I, about the technology and how it's affecting us. Ah, yes. So it's so strange because, so that's what you find. Theater-going audiences want this spectacle. You, you get the feedback more than I would. But what I love about theater is just the bare-bones element of it. In fact, I love even seeing films or, or television that have a, a theatrical... It doesn't feel real. It fe- you can see it as a stage. I just find it fascinating. It's like an imaginative space. And then you see the the actor. And uh, good images are, of course, wonderful and symbolism and all that. But that you have this thing, and you can be so close. Sometimes you can hear their breathing. And right. that thing is what attracts me to yes. theater, not all the distancing extravaganza. Exactly. Um, There is a moment, there is a time when um, you want to get rid of all that and you have to to go bare and kind of face the actor and the text and and face the emotion or the situation um, in its kind of essence. So I think as we grow um, more mature as directors, we we go, I mean, okay, I can only speak for myself. I go, I, I tend towards abstraction more. I mean, I've always liked minimalism on stage mm-hmm. um, because exactly there, there is something very magical about hearing that whisper because we are, um, in our daily lives, we're just constantly um, assaulted by noise and the noise of imagery, the noise of television, the noise of traffic, the noise of everything. So uh, if you take all that away and you just keep one moment of silence or one moment of empty space, then that is where imagination comes in and does the trick and uh, kind of imprints the story into your soul. So, yes, yes well, I, I wish we had more of that. Uh, and, uh, I wish we were braver um, to, to, to bring more of that silence and that space and that uh, breathing room into our work. Yeah. Well, it's, it's it actually, yeah, it's true. It, take, it takes courage. And then to 
spoke about certain roles and, and after just embodying silence and staring out. But it's so thrilling, you know? It is. How often do we get that even with those who are, we love or qu- we are quite close to? Exactly. Yeah. I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> yes. It's, it's, yes. Um, because we're very afraid of the silence. We have to, you know, fill it, fill it up with talk. Um, and, and there's something... Uh, similar in the theater where we have to get the story we think that uh, we're more comfortable telling the story with um, continuous imagery because once we stop then there's got to be something else and we don't feel that we can always rely on the interaction between actor and audience because I think that if we let that space uh, if we face that space um, between the actor and the spectator and without interfering as directors or as, you know, yeah, like artists, then something will start uh, happening there between them, which is very magical. Well, it is wonderful. I do feel the arts are excellent teaching vehicles, but also they are kind of, I don't have to say medicine, it sounds like a pill, but you know when you enter the theater, there's this thing, your breathing changes, you have this this Mm. moment, in the excitement and yes. uh, it it restores us and particularly the the plays that you uh, adapt and those that they bring us back to this moment when we were mm, it brings us back centuries I, I really like to think about that you know what our relationship is to the past and the shadows they cast on, on the present and so I'm really excited to celebrate more of the um, culture of Greece past and present I, I want to ask you, because we're coming, we're um, acting as collaborating curators for the 2021 Woman One Vote Festival. Uh, and so we're co- in America, and it's already happened in England, it's 100 years of, next year, 100 years of uh, women's suffrage. And, mm-hmm. and you've written and produced plays that are about these strong female characters, conflicted mm-hmm. female characters. So as you look back over the last 100 years, w- what we've accomplished and what we've yet to accomplish and the things that still haven't changed. You know, what are your hopes for the future? What are your feelings about that, and why is it important to tell stories? Um, because telling stories will take us uh, out of our own fears, and it's, it is about sharing. And as I said at the beginning, I think the only way you can free yourself as an artist is by reaching out and communicating. Um, and to do that, you have to be able to first trust and speak, tell your own story. So the more we tell our stories, um, the more we are letting others um, listen to us, and that interaction is valuable for us to grow. And for the world grow, I think, on the whole. It makes, a, it makes us better people, better artists. Um, in terms of... Uh, What's happening with, um, I mean, Greece obviously is still a very, uh, well, not very, but a relatively conservative country, and still the the directing profession is more or less male-dominated. Of course, there's a lot of women directors who have emerged in the past 20 years or so um, and doing great work, but still the people who have the money um, the big state subsidized theaters are run by male figures. So I'm hoping that in the future there will be more trust 
gained along the way. And trust comes with being confident mm-hmm. of your own abilities as an artist. So if, if we start talking more to each mm-hmm. other and uh, if we are more creative and more bold in our choices, then I think that situation will change for the better, I hope. So there's still a lot of reservation among women theatre directors who are not feeling legitimized. I'm talking about Greece, Cyprus, and maybe like the European South mostly, who don't feel legitimized to to go to certain, to to, um, experiment in certain ways or um, throw in different uh, bolder choices on stage. Uh, But I think gradually this will have to change. I'm I'm hoping it's not going to take forever. Yeah, and in terms of sexism, what are your ways of moving beyond perception? Well, I try not to change who I am Mm -hmm. because um, I've been there. uh, I've been harassed Mm -hmm. by uh, strong male, Mm -hmm. uh, powerful people uh, in the academic world, in the artistic world, um, and harassed is, uh, you know, said in a a broader sense, not necessarily, not sexually harassed, but... um, knowing that I was being viewed uh, as a woman artist, not as a good artist, so mm-hmm. that, uh, or a, a woman academic, meaning the expectations were of a certain kind. Mm-hmm. Um, I experienced that in the academic world, which I feel is even worse than uh, the theater world. Where, oh, really? uh, yeah. oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, absolutely. I mean, I know this is going to sound awful, but I've read an article recently that said that students will tend to listen more to the male professor than the female professor, and I thought this is like there's something about reproducing and you know keeping up the stereotype of the male powerful figure that needs to change because there's so much more effective ways of inspiring people, and it doesn't have to do with authority of that sort. So yes, the academic profession is extremely sexist in in many ways and in different parts of the world, I hear. But how do I go past that? Well, I've seen many women trying to become, to emulate this male model while they themselves are women. But we can be powerful and imaginative and wonderful teachers and artists being and, and still be nurturing women. <laughs> I think so. No, it, make, it makes perfect sense. There's a movement also here in France for feminizing certain words in certain professions, whereas uh, in America there's not, uh, it's an all neutral, right? And right. It, it was hard to explain yes. that when I was explaining it to American colleagues that no, we want to say that it's possible to be an écrivain and an écrivain, uh-huh. you know? Mm-hmm. And, they, and that they think it's just normal to be neutral. Well, it's hard because with the, the language, but neutral is just making the women men. Exactly, <laughs> just, exactly. And it's not, it's not, we are our sex, or some people exactly. are a more fluid sex, whatever it is, yep. but yes. it's not that the model, the ideal is a male. Exactly. Exactly. We can be who we want to be. We don't have to change who we're inclined to be or who we're, you know, who we feel we are in order to be more successful or to be taken seriously. And I think the less, I mean, the, 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 the faster we accept that 
we accept ourselves as who we are, the faster the other side, uh, so to speak, quote unquote, will start taking us seriously. We're not trying, we shouldn't try to meet the, role, the ideal role model of you know, a male director by being, I don't know, like more dictatorial maybe because that's the stereotype of a powerful man. No, we can still be who we are and find ways to inspire because there's so much women can, I mean, it's, it's obviously like self-explanatory. We, we are wonderful creatures. <laughs> but Thank you so much for adding these stories, but I should just interject. Is there something that I've missed? Well, my next directing project will be in Cyprus, and I will be directing Doll's House. Oh, yes, Doll's House. Yes, in the fall, which is very interesting because that's like the prototypical feminist play in some sense. So yeah. I'm kind of eager to start working on that. I'm working with a really wonderful uh, actor here. Mm-hmm. And it, it will be fascinating to me to explore how this issue of understanding who you are and what kind of things you, you want from life is still very much the same after all those years. It's still about breaking out of yourself and your limits and not just closing your, the door uh, on your husband because that's, that's no longer a shocking thing as it used to be at the late 19th century when the play was written. But how much do you dare kind of push yourself further and further towards your dreams and desires and, and who you want to be, ideally? Realizing the better you, who you think the better you will be. So this is what I'm working on next. Well, we, we look forward to Adult House. We look forward to seeing Phaedra I and your other productions as they travel. And I hope that we may uh, eventually co- collaborate on something or work it's together. Wonderful. But thank you so much, Ava Sidoropoulou, for all your insights into directing, writing, collaborating, your, your excellent book full of practical advice that I think could be enjoyed by uh, those who love the arts and just those who want to you know, even manage teams or educate. I think it's really wonderful. Th- thank you so much for adding your voice to the Christmas. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mia. That's wonderful. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Pico Banerjee. Digital Media Coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info.